Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. So, you were, tell us about your boundary forming. Okay, yes, yeah, so my, my friends uh, and backlist listeners, in fact, happy birthday, gentlemen. Neil and Tim had a joint 50th birthday party. And I used Neon to, Tim, was that? Neil, Neil and Tim. Oh, I thought that was the name of your band. Neon <laughs> Tim. Quite a good name. Yeah. Tim, I used to play in a band with Tim called the Gene Clark Five. Oh. which is an extremely esoteric joke, <laughs> and we split due to lack of interest. <laughs> but then when we got back together last weekend, for the first time, rather than two of us, there were actually five of us. What did you play? You it's, personally. it's the best drummer that I've ever played with. It's a, a guy called Bryn, and he used to be the drummer in the bands uh, The Fabulous Poodles and Fruhr, and Fruhr went on to become Underworld. So imagine, mm. imagine someone who I can't play the guitar very well, right? <laughs> but I'm playing with a really good drummer. Some people and, and a really an good, actual drummer and a really good musical director as well called Tim Cronin. Okay, this is what we played. We played "You Ain't Going Nowhere," the Bob Dylan song. Mm-hmm. We played "September Girls" by Big Star. We played Great. "Feel a Whole Lot Better" by the Birds, and then we segued into tracks that the Birthday Boys wanted to hear. So we played <laughs> "Understanding Jane" by the Icicle Works. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it. Yeah, yeah, for a long time ago, from the eighties. It was really Big good fun. McNabb fan. Also, because my guitar abilities are fairly limited, when they heard me play it through once, they went, I'll tell you what you could do on this song, Andy. How about giving us some feedback? <laughs> Can do. <laughs> so, fortunately, my son wasn't there to see me make an utter tit of myself as I, as I threw some shapes. I came off stage and somebody said to me, wow, wow, that was great. You really looked like you were enjoying yourself, which I was, Ooh. unlike many members of the audience. But it was really, really good fun. And it made me think, I ought to, I love making music, singing and showing off. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love playing music. I ought to play music more. Yeah. Did you ever play in a band, Jim? Uh, Yeah, I was, we had a school band called the Chartered Accountants. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ramones and Stiff Little Fingers covers. It's really pretty basic. What did you play? I did a bit of bass, but I was, I was lead singer. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, I didn't, it's just a lot of shouting. But we were quite good. We wrote a few songs. We wrote, actually wrote a song that Manise Bruckner, the subject of today's podcast, would have loved. It was called Middle Class Twats. <laughs> <laughs> Which, can you remember? So, so, can you remember any of the lyrics? Can you sing it You and your problems can sit and rot because you're all just middle class twats. <laughs> so we, at that stage, we weren't sure whether... Do you remember twat and twat? There was, there was a lot of, and at that stage, it was twat rather than twat. And this was in New Zealand, so it didn't, nobody knew what the word meant anyway. So. I am thrilled to think that people who've tuned in for the first time to hear a, an Anita Brunner podcast are listen, having to listen to this. <laughs> have, have either of our guests ever been members of a group? Good God, no. Absolutely not. But you like folk music, you know. You are like a, you, you are a folk maven. I will listen to it. And I will sing quietly to myself, but the world does not need to hear me sing. <laughs> Absolutely. But I thought that was the point of folk music. You didn't have to have a great voice. You, you just, just turn up and t- turn up, join along. You turn up in, in the oral in the oral keen. tradition. Keen and keen. I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And Lucy, you are against music, I think I'm right in saying. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Don't believe in it. Stop it now. <laughs> stop, stop it now, exactly. Another strange, you said to me, another strange coincidence. But you, but you said to me... Anita Bruckner, right? Indeed, right. Yeah, but also, you said to me that there is one song that you know all the words of. Yes, but I won't be repeating them I'm now. Not, I'm not resist- asking you to, but we'll, 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 we'll come on to Middle-class twats, by the way. Well, the chartered accountants. <laughs> My new favourite. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. We're gathered in the slightly stuffy lounge of a flat in a mansion block in Maida Vale, loaned to us by our sponsors Unbound, the website where authors and readers come together to create something special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today, both for the second time, are former guests Una McCormack and Lucy Scholes. Hello. 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 Thank you for coming in. Una is the co-director of the... <laughs> I'm going to say what Matt's written here. Una is the co-director of the Angela Ruskin Centre Centre for Science Fiction and Fantasy. <laughs> and your employers won't mind that, will they? I'm sure they'll be delighted with the name check. And, and has written official best-selling books about the Star Trek and Doctor Who series and is a New York Times best-selling Ooh. author. Woo! And uh, Una previously joined our happy band to talk about Venetia by Georgette Heyer. That's right. One of our most successful podcasts podcast to date. Also, welcome back, Lucy Scholes. Lucy is a writer and critic for The Guardian, The Independent and The BBC, amongst others. And she's also a contributing editor to the Bookinista website. And she came into Backlisted back in the midst of time to talk about uh, Vet's Daughter mm. uh, by Barbara Cummings, which is one of our favourite that books. That my favourite discovery from the podcast all of last year. What a pleasure. Um, lovely to know. Anyway, the book, uh, one of the... Uh, countless Bruckner novels that we could have chosen to discuss <laughs> is, in fact, Look at Me by Anita Bruckner. Her third novel, Andy, is that correct? It is her third novel, yes. 1983? Three. And as listeners may or may not know, she wrote two dozen novels. Is that right? 24. Yeah. 24. Yeah, so this is the third and did of she a... miss... She started when she She's... was in her... 50s. 50s that's right. yeah. Yeah. She's pretty much doing one a year until she, she gets a little bit older and slows down slows maybe down one every two. Yeah, the reason, there's yeah. a re- well, you will come on to it, but there's ah. the reason for the one a year is, is stupendous. So oh, we'll, we'll wait till we get Good. to it anyway. But, as we usual, foul rag and bone shop time, Andy, <laughs> what have you been reading? Well, I've been reading with great, great pleasure the memoir of one of my musical heroes, a book called The Cake and the Rain, by Jimmy Webb. Now, Jimmy Webb was the author of many great songs that you would know, including perhaps one of the greatest records ever made, which Alignment by the late Glen Campbell. Also, <laughs> by the time I get to Phoenix, Galveston, Up, Up and Away, My Beautiful Balloon. Oh, I know that he, one. Hey, right, there you go. And he wrote, he also wrote the only song that our guest Lucy Skulls knows all the words for, which is... <laughs> MacArthur Park. Ah. He wrote MacArthur Park, and the title of his book, The Cake and the Rain, comes from the famous lyric from MacArthur Park. MacArthur Park is melting in the dark, all the sweet green icing flowing down, someone left the cake out in the rain. And Jimmy Webber spent the last 50 years trying to explain to people <laughs> what he meant by that bold metaphor and in fact the the epigraph of this book is a quote from wh auden which is my face looks like a wedding cake left out in the rain we were talking earlier you can decide whether jimmy lifted it from wh auden or whether his point is i bet people didn't spend that lifetime 
asking WH Auden what he meant by cakes in the rain. <laughs> so this book, I really enjoyed this book. It is a fascinating account of somebody who had a foot in two camps in the 60s and the 70s. On the one hand, he's in the world of rock and roll in a very revolutionary period, and on the other hand, he's in the world of pure showbiz. And so the book is a repository of stories about people like Sinatra, Glenn Campbell, The Fifth Dimension, Tiny Tim. But on the other hand, it's also there are stories about the Beatles and individual Beatles. There's a story about Paul McCartney here, which is clearly was laid down in 1968, and he's waited nearly 50 years to tell. I'm not going to tell it here, but it's so toe-curling, and the book is worth it for that alone. There's also uh, stories about meeting Elvis Presley, the story about Joni Mitchell, the stories about Harry Nielsen, the stories about Simon Garfunkel, and so on and so forth. And because this is Jimmy Webb, it's written in a mixture of sort of brilliantly turned anecdotes and then sudden flourishes of prose. For instance, here's a bit where he's talking to the music executive David Geffen. David, I responded with a burst of enthusiasm. We'll come to Hawaii. I can't wait. The phone immediately rang again. It was the D-E-V-I-L. What's up, he asked. Really, I asked, really, he replied. Well, I just went to Omaha and kidnapped Susan, and now I'm going to re-kidnap her and take her to Hawaii with David Geffen. It sounds like your sex life is getting complicated, he chortled. I need a place to stay. How about your place for a while? Sure, I could put you up for a while. You can watch the place while I'm away. Thanks, bud, said the devil as he hung up. And somewhere in the high belfry of the Exoverse, great black bells chimed antitonal and dispersed a low beating of subeternal defibrillation throughout all of space, changing the course of time. <laughs> So that's, so that's a bit better than what you get on VH1. And also, I'm going to give a plug to this because it deserves a plug. He will be making a very rare public appearance on the 28th of September at Waterstones in Kensington High Street, which is the shop in which I used to work and oh. where, 25 years ago, in the returns room, no doubt packing up Anita Bruckner books. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing P.F. Sloan by Jimmy Webb for the very first time. So that will be a nice circularity there of the exoverse. I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it sounds great. But I'm, I'm, I'm buying, I'm ordering it. And, and volume two is on the way. The, the, <laughs> the less successful years. <laughs> so, John, what have you been reading? Well, I think I've, I've been reading a, very close to the, the, my favourite novel uh, of the last few months, new novel of the last sort of six months or so, Pretty Teenagers, We That Are Young, a massive doorstepper of a novel, uh, published by the excellent Gallybegger Press. I guess there's no way around it. It is a retelling of King Lear, set in contemporary <laughs> in I mean, which is... Yeah, it doesn't really give the plot away, except to say that there are three daughters and there is an ageing Indian businessman who runs this massive global corporation out of India uh, that is beginning to creak at the seams and... The book starts with uh, his illegitimate son coming back to Delhi. He's uh, been successful in the West and now is coming back to India, reconnecting with his roots. It is 500 pages long. It ought to be difficult to read. It isn't. It is, I'm pretty sure, her first novel. It is. She's a, an activist and a lecturer at Warwick. And she draws characters, I think, that are completely... It's, it's, it's not... You know, there are Indian novels. There is a drop-down menu, I guess, of things that you would expect to find in Indian novels. Quite a lot of them there. There is an amazing scene. The, the, the great storm scene is set in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a Delhi slum. The book's about climate change. It's incredibly contemporary. So you're, you feel that you're getting a portrait of Indian life really as it is now. 
um, you know, commercialism, it's, it's, it's it, the roots of fundamentalism, all the things I guess you would expect to find in a, in, a, in a novel given its setting. But for me, it's the best novel set in India that I've read since, since A Suitable Boy. And that is pretty, for me, high praise. So this, as you were saying, is picked up by Galley Beggars. Galley Beggars are, are of course, the, the publisher who found Amy McBride yeah. after she had been rejected by many people. And I was reading a thing that Sam Jordison wrote about We Letter Young, where he said, by the time it got to us, it came to us with a history of ecstatic rejections. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a fascinating publishing thing, and we, we might talk about this in relation to Bruckner as well, about how frequently she published and what effect that had on her career. But in this case, you know, it's perfectly possible for editors to recognise the merits, the literary merits of a book, while also having to make a decision where they say, but how will we sell it? Yeah. And that's kind of one of those things that why we need independent publishers and we need publishers like Galley Beggars to pick these books Absolutely. up. Absolutely. I mean, it's the, exactly the reason why uh, Unbound exists, because it just, I mean, it's unthinkable that a novel of this quality, it really, she writes, she writes gloriously. She's, one of the things I love is that, I don't speak uh, Hindi, but there's a lot of Hindi in the text, and it's gloriously un-italicised throughout. It's kind of, I wouldn't call it in any sense experimental, but she's pushing at the boundaries of the form all the time. I'll read a tiny little excerpt, which is just the guy on the plane, but it just gives you a sense of that kind of collision of cultures. It's an Indian novel, but it's much more universal in its themes. I mean, certainly, the, the, as I say, the underlying sense of, of a planet in crisis I mean, if you like or know King Lear, that's the other thing. It's just brilliant the way. I mean, yeah. it's it's interesting. I read this very soon after I'd read the Camilla Shamsi Home Fire, which is based on Antigone. I'm I'm kind of fascinated that South Asian writers are finding these Western myths and turning them into mm. into really convincing contemporary fiction. Anyway, he's on the plane on the way back, but I just thought it gives you a flavour of, of the and of how well she writes. Uh, he calls for another whiskey. Sorry, sir, we only serve unlimited drinks in first class. The flight attendant walks away, her hair so neat, her makeup so pat she could be company made, remote controlled. She sweeps behind the red curtain that divides the rich from the not so much. Beyond that curtain is Wonderland. Drinks and legroom, stewardesses who never say no. The captives of economy surround each other, a tangle of saris, plaits, cardigans, high-heeled sandals slung into empty Dunkin' Donuts boxes torn-up glamour magazines. The men stretch across the seats, the women clutch the children, the children won't let go of their Nintendo DSs even as they sleep. Dinner is given, not served. Brown plastic lumps in a Makani sauce, rice and pickles, or white plastic lumps with herb sauce instead. He chooses Indian, then Western, cannot stomach anything. Next to him, the newlyweds try to keep food, sachets, cutlery on the tray to eat without elbowing each other. The bride's fork breaks. She uses her fingers for rice. The smells are of rehydrated flesh. The toilet's feet. Mm. It's just, it's good. And it keeps that up for 500 pages, I have to say. I'm really, really thrilled. I'm, I was slightly shocked when it arrived. Thudded on the mat. How much money is it? To buy? Mm. In your English pounds? Mm. In £9.99. That's amazing. Yeah. Bargain. Seven years' quite, quite work, it's, right, and 500 pages, and it's £9.99. Yeah, and as I keep saying to people, when you and I were boys, Andy, what yep. was the price of a novel in Waterstones 20 years ago? It was 14 it was, it was more. In fact, I wish somebody would do that, if there's anybody out there who's good at looking at the, how things have changed, pricing has changed. I would say that fiction has probably 
kind of halved in price relatively over the last yeah. 20 years. And that's at full price, by the way, because people aren't paying $14.99. They're paying $9.99 discounted or $9.99 because it's a paperback original. Pretty teenager, we that are young. Thank you very much. So, are we hearing from an unbound author at this point? Uh, well, we're not going to hear from an unbound author. We're going to hear from Arifa Akbar, who is... She said she's there. <laughs> she sat there. She sat there. <laughs> she doesn't know this, but she, we are, um, who's going to tell us about a very exciting thing that we're launching called Boundless. Boundless is a site where you can read long essays about topical things, but also universal things, completely quirky things. We're going to get writers to write about subjects that they're passionate about, but also completely counterintuitive things too. The idea of Boundless is to get people reading things that they can't read in newspapers anymore because newspapers just don't have the space for it or maybe don't even have the imagination for it. We're featuring some pretty amazing writers like Ali Smith, like David Olasoga, like Neil Mukherjee. But I hope they're going to be writing about subjects that are incredibly important or interesting to them, but that people haven't read them writing about before. It's not just essays. We've got, I mean, we've got Ali Smith and David Olasoga writing about something whimsical or important to them. That's coming up in December and January. But in the meantime, we've got Alex Clark interviewing Siri Husvet. We've got Badisha interviewing the poet and novelist Anne Michaels, who's coming to town, who's coming to London this autumn. We've got wonderful writers like Jenny Erpenbeck and Andrew Solomons writing about in our slot called, which it's a weekly slot called Book of a Lifetime. And this is where writers write about the book that touched them or changed them or, or made them become writers. So it could be the book they picked up the age of 13 or the age of 30 or whatever, but it just marked them in a significant way. So the kind of person who would enjoy, I hope, reading Boundless and becoming a Boundless reader would be the sort of person that has the time and the interest to sit down, read three or 4,000 words on the latest book or on a writer like Andrew Solomons or Preeti Tanija, maybe a book lover, but not necessarily an ideas lover. I'm really impressed by some of the fabulous and imaginative sort of online literary content. Um, there's things like the Literary Hub, there's other sites like that growing and Boundless is part of that. So it's launching hopefully in a couple of weeks from now, so around early to mid-October and it's completely free, no subscription, you don't have to sign up for it, you just you know, we'll put we'll put out content for free on all of social media. You can go to Boundless and we'll put a piece of content on every day of the week. Let's pick this up again shortly. And so back to the main the main subject, the long awaited main subject of this <laughs> podcast. I'm slightly superstitious about it because the elephant in the room very elegant, becardigant elephant in the backlisted room has been the long-running, barely concealed love affair of Andy Miller <laughs> and Anita That's Bruckner. True, true. And finally, he gets to declare his passion, his love. Well, I'm going so to answer my own question first for once. Andy, where did you first encounter the work of Anita Bruckner? And the answer is that it was at school. And I wow. read, it was the first Booker Prize winning book that I ever read was Hotel du Lac in 1985 when I was 16 and I didn't really get it. 
I knew nothing of the controversy surrounding the fact that Hotel Du Lac won the Booker Prize. We'll come on to that later. But I was just beginning to discover literature that you could go into bookshops and buy from the fiction section. And I thought, oh, Booker Prize, well, I've heard of the Booker Prize. So I read Hotel Du Lac. I didn't really get it, but I did enjoy it. And when I read Hotel Du Lac again last year, I was amazed about how much of it I could actually remember and how much of the tone of it came back and flavour came back. And I read a couple of other Bruckners over the years. And then as regular listeners to Backlisted will know, last year, after Anita Bruckner died, I thought, oh, I'd like to read another Anita Bruckner. And uh, I read Latecomers. And as I said on the episode, I think it's on the Raymond Chandler episode, after I'd read it, I was blown away by it. I was blown away by it. I cannot remember responding so strongly to a book for a long time. And that sort of led me to read many, many other of her books over the last 18 months. One of the reasons we wanted to do this episode is because we had a tweet from somebody, say, a few weeks ago, saying, where is your Anita Bruckner episode? I can't find it. And I just thought, well, I don't want this to be a running joke. I actually sincerely believe these are some of the best books I've ever read. So that's why we're here today. That's why we've plugged the microphone into the desk. So that's my account of where I first came across Anita Bruckner. Oon McCormack. I think I must have read it roughly the same time. I bet it was the same edition, that sort of little blue paperback. I think my much older sisters had it, and, and I picked it up because I was trying to read their stuff. I must. I probably was about the same age, 15 or 16. Imagine me, this sort of uh, bookish little girl at a convent school in Merseyside. It was literally the most glamorous thing I had ever read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, imagine such lives could exist. I aspire to this. It's incredible. So I, I hooved it up. I like you. I must have understood about one word in four, but something about the the lilt of the of the sentences meant that I then went. I, I read I've read very little fiction as a teenager, but I consistently read Anita Bruckner, and I think I must have read about the first ten. 11 novels before I, I went off to university and stopped reading at all. So um, so that's that's when I first read it. It was, it was They were incredible. They were a glimpse of a life I barely knew existed. And what was it you liked about them? Because I do I have noticed that once people... <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say. Mm. They're quite Moorish. Once you've got the taste for them, you tend to read quite a few They're like that big box of chocolates that Alex and uh, Nick are consuming, aren't they? You just uh, you look put one, Yeah, yeah. You, you read one, you read them very quickly. I can answer that as the sort of ancient reader I am now. As the teenager, I genuinely do think it was a, a glimpse of a sort of a sophistication, a metropolitan life that I didn't know. Mm. But at the same time, I, you know, that bookish girl in a convent school is responding to the story of lonely bookish girls everywhere I think <laughs> so uh, I, I suspect that was it and then her languages I mean you're always yes. going to be beguiled <laughs> by those sentences aren't they yeah you always are so I think that must have been it Lucy what about you when I first read her actually very recently which I feel is a bit of a cheat on I feel like I should come back listed and always say talk about a long a long harboured <laughs> love but actually no I for many years I laboured under that rather stupid impression that she wrote novels about spinsters in the worst possible shape and form a spinster can take. <laughs> I don't know, I think I always thought that she was along the lines of someone like Ivy Compton Burnett, who I'm not a big fan of, uh, novels about taking tea with curates or things like this. Mm. And so I just steered clear of her. And then only probably a couple of years ago, I think I read Hotel de Lac for the first time because I was writing a piece about hotels and literature. thought that one would probably fit the bill. Um, <laughs> 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 <and> then, <laughs> 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 
One of those Goodreads lists or whatever. And, and then I realised, wow, this is not what I thought it was at all. And very quickly after that, I think I read Look at Me and um, that was the one that did the kind of blowing. I mean, I like Hotel de Lac, but Look at Me was the first one I read that I was really kind of blown away by. And it will always be the one I come back to, I think. Yes, I think Look at Me is my well, it's it's probably my favourite. Speaking as the Bruckner ingenue here, because I came to her very late, <laughs> like this year. That's you not quite true. Read, I'd, read, I'd, read Hotel, read I'd read Hotel du Lac a long, long time ago and actually had remembered that I'd quite enjoyed it and was surprised by how much I'd enjoyed it. But it was, at that time, not the kind of thing that I was interested in reading more of, mm-hmm. being callow and male. <laughs> But, you know, as listeners will know, tediously, I've come to see the error of my ways. And I have to say, coming back to her work for this podcast has been, as ever, a revelation. She just seems to be in that sort of remarkable strand of 20th century. I mean, the pleasure in reading it is very similar to me to the pleasure in discovering, which, as I again have confessed to, discovering Muriel Spark far too late in life. And rather like Muriel Spark, I'll read the Brooklyn steadily. I don't want to be without them. I think I, I love the idea that there are 24. I've read four of them, including the one we're talking about today, rather <laughs> more quickly than <laughs> I anticipated. I think with Start in Life, it's, I, I mean, I like Hotel de Lac and Latecomers, but I really think Look at Me is a... And we'll talk about why. It grabs you from the, from the absolute... One of the great opening paragraphs, I think. You mentioned, uh, Lucy, the S word... Spinster. Mm. And one of the things that it seems to me is revelatory about reading Anita Bruckner rather than hearing about Anita Bruckner is the more you read, the idea that she only wrote about lonely women. It it seems ludicrous to me. Actually ludicrous and insulting to her and to her work. And one of the things that's very significant to me and I think he's a little understood about her or little reported is that she is very funny she is funny on the page and she's very funny in person she was a great interview if you read any interviews with her she is terrifically amusing in a kind of Eeyore-ish kind of way and there's a quote here there's an interview here with um, Boyd Tonkin she's talking about the image problem that she had she sort of in ten so, years after Hotel du Lac. She sort of invented herself. Yes, this is this is the constant game. She perpetuates it and she goes on and on about the about the reviews that she gets. I mean, you have to work quite hard to find a bad review. Yeah, she says. Well, I am a spinster. (laughs) I make no apologies for that, but I'm neither unhappy nor lonely. I am interested in people who live on their own, people who get left behind, who drop through the net but who survive. They seem to me quite heroic characters sometimes, but no-one inquires about them because they're people who do without much conversation, whose loudest moments are internal. If such characters persist through my novels, that's because I don't know much about them, not because I know them too well. I write to find out what makes them tick. And she described the process of writing fiction as, and this is brilliant trying very hard to remember something which has not yet taken place. Oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. So what she's doing, I think, is mapping out 
the inner lives of people who are aware of how they are seen by the outside world and constantly challenging them, confirming them. There's a dance going on all the time, I think. And indeed, with her public image, Julian Barnes tells a very funny story about he would have lunch with her once a year and it would last 75 minutes. No more, no yeah, less. Everybody said that. Should, should very precise. And towards the end of the main course, she would lean over and say, I'm working on a new book. <laughs> it's about a lonely <laughs> woman. <laughs> Lucy, you wrote a fantastic piece which is available on LitHub. Yeah, well, thank right, you. Right, yeah. about... Penelope Fitzgerald and Bruckner mm. and Solitude. Yeah. Do you think that there is a kind of constant challenging going on in these books of both the rewards and the punishments of Solitude? Oh, I think very much. And I think that's probably one of the things I love so much about Look at Me is because, for me at least, it weighs up very kind of cleverly and in a lot of detail the difference between that kind of life that you have. I mean, Frances, the heroine of Look At Me, she lives alone um, with her housekeeper. Her mother and father have passed away. She lives in their old flat. And she is an aspiring writer. And she's able to write because of this solitude that she has in her life, the way that she looks at people. She's always observing them. She's writing. But she also wants to be living this life outside of that. But she can't have it both ways. And I think that's what's so wonderful about the book is that you, she pushes towards trying to be part of other people's lives but when she pushes sort of too far into that the yearning to be by herself comes back into play again so I think it's it's just a very clever book in telling you the sort of both sides of the story and so that one is not loneliness is very different solitude and there's a push and a pull there at work which I think is obviously I don't want to say that's exactly what's going on in Bruckner's life but if you read some of the interviews she's very happy with the decision that she's made or she says she's happy with the decision she's made to be alone and, and work. It's that old paradox, though, isn't it? It's, she's very at pains to always say that she's not her characters and that her life is very different. And yet, and, <laughs> and yet when you actually look at the biographical details, the sense that she has, that sort of thing, it comes up in this book, the Darwinian sense that through accidents of birth or the, the nature of her relationship with her parents and bad and difficult parents. I mean, that's her first book, A Start in Life, mm. is about a spectacularly <laughs> a nightmarish parental situation, which she kind of... The heroines always deal with to some degree. They kind of rise above yes. or cope with or, or cauterise the pain. But it does leave them kind of isolated and finding it difficult. In Look at Me, I, I find that whole thing where she says, you know, she's just not the couple that she that she wants to be like mm. and wants to be part of Alex and Nick she feels that they are a da of a different darwinian order that they mm. are kind of their sort of ubermensch ubermensch yeah, and yeah. she can't insofar as there is a plot <laughs> In this I think there's, um, we joke a lot about, about food. There's sort of simultaneously a real, uh, there's a real sort of famished nature to the characters, I think, and a kind of hunger. Yes. But at the same time, this sort of distaste and revulsion that, you mm. know, there's just something too fleshly about she, these she, people. She, she, just not on food. R yeah. Rachel, my wife, used to do her publicity and she used to have to go out with Anita. And I mean, the stories are all, but she said she would very often, you know, you'd go out for lunch and she would smoke. But it would literally, it would be steamed, she'd eat steamed vegetables, you know, and she'd be quite happy sort of picking away at that. But she also tells the, that humour thing. There's a story that Julian Barnes tells, which Rachel was there for, where she gets in to, to sign books in the office. And at a certain point, she's, there's about a thousand, and she's done 50, and she says, I think that'll do. 
and Rachel's going, no, you can be my But she did that once because she'd had a, she went into, into Hatchards with her and she gasped. She said, you never heard a need to gasp. She looked at the pile of books and she had to do it. And then she said at the end of the, the session, the signing session, she got out and on Piccadilly. She just, she said she suddenly got skittish and leapt onto the back of a Rootmaster bus and said, I have to go now, dear, and waved and went off down the street. She said it was like a sort of weird 1950s musical. But it, a moment of brief encounter yeah. or something, yeah. I think she's so good. I mean, Look at Me particularly is such a good book about solitude, yes, but also about writers and writing and about the compromise that exists between looking at the world and then secluding yourself from the world, claustration, yeah, she loves that word, word, she? Yeah. Uh, in order to write it down. Una, have you got a, a... I have a little bit, yes. It's from the start of Chapter 6 of uh, Look At Me. It was then that I saw the business of writing for what it truly was and is to me. It is your penance for not being lucky. It is an attempt to reach out to others and to make them love you. It is your instinctive protest when you find you have no voice at the world's tribunals and that no one will speak for you. I would give my entire output of words, past, present and to come, in exchange for easier access to the world, for permission to state I hurt or I hate or I want. Or indeed, look at me. And I do not go back on this. For once a thing is known, it can never be unknown. It can only be forgotten. And writing is the enemy of forgetfulness, of thoughtlessness. For the writer, there is no oblivion, only endless memory. Wow. I just (laughs) actually (laughs) punched the air. Yeah, yeah, some of it is so... And the beauty of it, speaking it is just And the way uh, she doesn't... um, She she works that look-at-me theme, you know, from the first kind of brilliant paragraph about, about, about memory... I wonder I what sort the of, uh, book I, that Francis writes would be. Would it would it be the comic novel that she hints at in the well, text? I think it's this book. I think there oh, is. Well, a, yeah. I think there's Isn't a it? sense towards me. the yeah. end that it is that it is this book. Uh, let's do the blurb. Okay, so this is the blurb for the first edition of Look at Me. This is um, Anita Brookner's third novel. She published A Start in Life and Providence to very very positive reviews. I think I'm right in saying. Uh, So here we go. This is, if you haven't read it, here's what's in store for you. Melancholy came next to madness in Frances Hinton's filing system. (laughs) She she worked in the reference library of a medical research institute dedicated to the study of problems in human behaviour. There were a number of borderline cases sitting and working in the library itself, (laughs) and Frances could be scathingly funny about their quirks on paper. Writing helped to lighten the load of those qualities thought to be essential to a librarian. In fact, Frances would have been happy to throw her sterling qualities out of the window for a little of what Nick and Alex had. Frances always found herself trying to attract Nick's attention in the library. He exuded charm when he had the time. Good looks, good health and good luck. His wife, Alex, was equally dazzling. When she was taken up by this legendary couple, and I'm just interjecting to say here, of course... Nick and Alex, uh, uh, Nicholas and Alexandra, you can interpret that how you want, but the names of the great (laughs) Russian dynastic duo. When she was taken up by this legendary couple, Frances thankfully abandoned most of her critical faculties and worked hard at picking up some of their saving nonchalance. It was through them that she made some new friends and discovered new possibilities and impossibilities. They were, in fact, to provide her with her sentimental education.
Anita Bruckner's third novel is a triumph. How such an uncompromising gaze at loneliness can manage to be so vastly enjoyable as well as moving is something to which only Anita Bruckner holds the secret. <laughs> that's really good. That's really good. That's uh, just as you were, just as your head was drooping with uh, with uh, misery. Should they try and give it a little push at the end? But remember, she's funny. She's remember, she's funny. Yeah. That's the thing, though, isn't it? That that what lives that you were saying, you know, about the the sentences. They're just just mm-hmm. the not a massive amount happens in the novel, and you you're not quite sure. In fact, we should talk about what what does happen without giving too much away. I think nothing that and everything. Nothing and everything is exactly right, isn't it? You you know. It's an Anita Bruckner novel, and if you've read at least one, you know that, that there's so much optimism when she discovers the relationship with, mm. with Nick and Alex is full of optimism. But because she's such a good writer, she leaves enough, enough of a trail for you to know that this isn't likely to work out well. Yeah. Lucy, is, she, is Francis a reliable narrator? I don't think she's an unreliable narrator in the classic sense of the term, but she is unreliable in as much as there are certain confusions um, in terms of the plot, aren't there? Like what you know, because the whole relationship. How much she deliberately go into, conceals the prior relationship, doesn't she? She conceals she the prior relationship. Yeah. She doesn't sort of. She also plays. I don't know. I mean, I find I find Francis incredibly intriguing, not because. I mean, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, that this kind of this push and pull situation between loneliness and solitude and, and sort of life and action and, and staying inside and writing, that what makes me much more intrigued by her than than a kind of perhaps the impression you might have from just reading that blurb is the way that she constantly pushes against these options she has to yeah. move out into the wider world. You know, all those... Yes. Because Alex and Nick, without giving too much information away, but they have a spare bedroom in their house that Alex talks about her moving into. Yeah. And it's she she pushes back against this. She sort of... And then little things happen and she's she so... She knows something important will be eaten. Exactly. She she's very aware of what she will lose if she kind of moves into the light and, and, and sort of starts this life. So she's unreliable in one sense, but I don't think it's, you know, when you say, if you say unreliable mm. narrator, that gives a certain impression. And yet, it's, not, and it's yet. not exactly unreliable, yeah. is it? It's just her judgment. Her ju- you don't entirely trust her judgment. She believes, that James, she believes that James is in love with her, and yet it probably... It, it's yeah, never, you can never be sure, You're never can sure, you? and, and there's the scene, the climactic scene in her yeah. in her bedroom is comes as a shock to the reader as well as a shock, an absolute shock to and her. And it's such a confusing one. It's still, it, it, and it's, it's never really unpacked. It's never unpacked. We're never quite sure of who wanted what, why he behaves the not way he does. Not with you, Francis, why, not with you. What does that mean in so mm. many ways? You know, there's so many ways you could read that. And yet, because we only ever see it through her... I mean, in that, of course, because we only ever see it through her point of view, that is the kind of unreliability of the narration. And she's well, bewildered also, and confused and doesn't understand his motives and, and possibly he, he has not been the man that she has fantasised or imagined. The romantic hero that's always run yeah. through the Bruckner novel. But also, she says in the first few pages of the book, I am invulnerable. Mm. She's, uh, this is why, 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 why I think the, the creation of the character is so brilliant in this book. Mm that clearly as the book goes on, you learn that she had suffered a tremendous breakdown after what we might assume was an adulterous affair yeah. of some kind. Yeah. She prefers not to talk about it. I never speak of it, is what she says, in yeah. fact, several times. And th- therefore the yeah, will, the will, she has created a way of living which is about protecting herself yeah. from further harm. Well, protection and, is a great theme, isn't it? She went, yeah. When she first feels James's arm around her shoulder, she said it's the first time she's felt protected since she was a... 
and, and the, I think the sadness of the book is, you know, she allows herself to feel that there might be another way to live it, of living, yeah. which would be more rewarding, which would allow her to join the ranks of these people who take what they want when they want. Mm -hmm. And of course, she's she's cruelly is the, is the word it is yeah. dispossessed and, of that. And, and, well, she doesn't know how to play by their rules. I mean, she's she's an. I also find her the idea of her innocence very interesting because she's obviously not as innocent. I mean, we're talking sexually innocent as someone like Alex assumes she is, no. yeah. because she there are vague references, veiled ones, to her having had a sexual relationship before. Yeah, yeah. But yet, at the same time, we are, we sort of almost led to assume that maybe the she has it. Fanny. Yes, and then this way. Also, don't you think that's fascinating. On the very first page, she makes a point. She says, "My name is Frances Hinton, and I do not like to be called Fanny." And yet, Alex and James continually, um, sorry, Alex and Nick talk, call her Fanny yeah, all absolutely. the time. Yeah. She puts up with these sort of odd. I don't know, it's so hard to trust her sometimes, but the, equally you don't feel that she's trying to kind of... She's writing she, that but, afterwards, isn't she, as well, the kind of... Um, yes, if but, this is the book she's written but as she, well, then... She has been... Uh, it seems to me... It, wi willing to be infantilised yeah. in yeah. terms of her relationship with her mother and in terms of the relationship with the woman who lives in the flat, the cleaner, yeah. and the, Nancy. And, and, Nancy. Nancy. and then she... But, Again, she does the same thing while thinking she's embracing this far more racy Bohemian, world, yeah, yeah. Bohemian world. Alex, she's, she's, she's their child. She's yeah. like their child it's again. Not, yeah, it's, it's, it's so, do, it's so do you painful. think it's meant to evoke Fanny Price from Mansfield Park? Yeah. I, I wonder. I, it, uh, these maybe. things are not carelessly yeah. done by Brooklyn. No, Martin. there's a lovely part. There's, I just this is a I thought in, this is from chapter eight where she just says, "I wanted you see, talking about the failed relationship with James. I wanted you see, to make it all come out right this time." Yeah. I wanted contentment and peace for myself, for him, and I wanted the approbation of others. Perhaps above all, the approbation of others. I wanted it to go according to plan. I even wanted the small satisfactions of congratulations and good wishes. I wanted to see the smiles on the faces of Mrs Halloran, Dr Simic, as they raised glasses to me. I wanted, for once in my life, a celebration to make up for all the sadness, all the waste and confusion, all the waiting, the sitting in sick rooms, the furtive returns and the lying morning face. I wanted, more than anything, a chance to be simple once again, as I was meant to be and as I had been long ago, a long, long time ago. It's pretty good. She says something similar here, near the, very near the end of the book. I find this incredibly moving, actually. It seemed to me that I, rather than he, had brought this about, and my despair was extreme. For now that I knew that I loved him, it was his whole life that yeah, I loved. Yeah. Yeah. And I would never know that life. Changes would no doubt take place, and I would not even know what they were. How is he? I would long to ask. But there would be no one to ask. If I were to pass him in the corridor or in the library, I would have to smile like the stranger he wanted me to be. And if I wished to please him, I must simply stay away. And his life, his life would go on without me, and I would have no knowledge of it. And since I had apparently understood so little, I could not even blame him. I get things wrong, you see. 
Yeah. Yeah. That I get things wrong it's is so heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, think it that... is in all senses a, a harrowing book. And um, at that chapter 11, that penultimate chapter, yeah. where uh, it's, sort it's of like a chapter, which yeah, it's this descent into hell. hell really. uh, oh, the long walk home. Well, this is another thing that she's so brilliant at, I, yeah. I, I think. That you, it's one of the great know, set pieces I've read. Yeah. This idea of Bruckner mm. writing these, these sort of polite books. One of the things that really struck me when I started reading them in earnest is if she wants to be funny, she's funny. Absolutely. If she wants to be dramatic, she's dramatic. If she wants to chart someone's nervous breakdown and allow a sort of almost, actually Aikman, is an Aikman-like horror yep, to start flowing in, the description of the... The, hand the, the walk across Hyde Park and through mm. the... the... It's, hor- it's horrendous. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, it's truly a, it's dark. It's a classic... It, it also, if you're looking at... You know, it's a classic trigger, the, the terrible scene with the the slapping on of the pudding in the restaurant, yeah. which oh, the essentially, essentially yes. triggers <laughs> a depressive episode. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. and what, what she narrates brilliantly. And, you know... But that whole feeling, it's a brilliant thing that she said to... to uh, you know, I think it was a Mick Brown interview she said she'd always admired Freud but had resisted any temptation to undergo a a psychoanalysis it wasn't within my scope and one doesn't know how intelligent the interrogator would be (laughs) which is such a classic Bruckner I just I'm gonna we're gonna come on to the biography in a moment because we've got a little clip but I just want to read this I was sent this um by our friend Ewan Tant and this is from this is the beginning of an introduction to um an edition of Red Lights by her great favourite Georges Simenon, yeah. uh, that she wrote for um, <clears throat> the New York Review of Books uh, about ten years ago. This is the beginning of the introduction. See if this rings any bells. Introduction. The formula is simple but subtle. A life will go wrong, usually because of an element in the protagonist's makeup which impels him to self-destruct, to willfully seek disgrace, exclusion, ruin in his search for a fulfilment and a fatal freedom which take on an aura of destiny. In a genre which has since been exploited but never truly replicated, Simonon examines this phenomenon time after time and in a variety of settings. A man, and it is almost invariably a man, will suddenly act out of character and for no apparent reason. This divergence from his normal pattern of behaviour will lead him to abandon all safety, all caution in the interest of that illusory freedom. This momentary rapture against which he has no defence will ensure his downfall, but the rash act will empower him in ways he has perhaps sought, almost unknowingly, all his life. But for women. (laughs) 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 In the case of Bruckner. Every novel she's written. Although, um, uh, do you think it's from the rash act, or do you think the the tragedy, back to Greek tragedy again, do you think the tragedy in her heroines is that they don't act out of character enough? Yeah, Mm. I'm, I'm fascinated, but I'm fascinated by the whole cult around Bruckner. So I'm fascinated why why what is it about Bruckner that's 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 so attractive to people now in a way that it seems to have gathered. I mean it it it's the most anticipated on Twitter at least. <laughs> never never <laughs> a, 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 an echo chamber, obviously. But I'm fascinated, but what is it that about Bruckner that people connect to? <laughs> well, I mean I my my my, my little theory, theory that I push out is that she genuinely writes about people whose lives don't turn out particularly well and that sense particularly a, a, a lot of people have as they're getting older that of disappointment mm. of mm. of early promise not having been fulfilled of relationships either not working or not happening mm. and that terrible sense that she has in all the books of time passing 
you know, of, of age. And age she writes, decay. she writes yeah. more kind of brilliantly about the, the, the sort of de the decline. I mean, she says somewhere in life, there are no happy endings because the body gives you away. It lets you down. It betrays you and you're tied to the morality and there's no escape. <laughs> age is the final betrayal. I, yes, that think, ties oh. in with my, but this ties in my theory about Bruckner or the reason why I can I think it's showing my psychological not... hand, but, but it's, she writes brilliantly. Unlike many, many writers write about the result of their characters' actions, the result of their actions. Yeah. What Bruckner writes about brilliantly, in my opinion, is how you manage what is done to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And inaction as and well. By, inaction. by the failure of the body, by friends, exactly by right. enemies, yeah. by, by internal fear. How you're, what yeah. your parents... Bad parenting, that's one of the great... Bad parenting. Inadvertent yeah. bad parenting, mm. what, what? in fact. How do you live a noble, correct existence wow. with whatever hand you may have been dealt? That is what... Bruckner writes about, I think. And they're very internal, aren't they? She's always going for walks, having baths, yeah. and thinking. That thing of having to, in Hotel de Lac, and in all, that thing of the heroine having to go and process the, the things, that, as you say, that are being done to her, that are happening to yeah. her. Yeah, it's all about that. Almost that sort of, it's almost more like Camus, Sartre, a sort of middle of the century sense of just, it's just the difficulty of having relationships. And exactly. Relationships. But it's the ordinary difficulties yeah. of life as well. It's no, exactly those. It's nothing. Unlike in those books, there's no, she, the, her heroines aren't, aren't made into exemplary figures. In, in a way, that's what I love about the way she writes is that at the end of this book, you don't quite know what you feel about Frances yeah. Hinton. You you feel you do feel a bit sorry for her. You feel slightly, and then but I guess it's the book that you've got yeah. in your hand yeah, is yeah, the yeah. sort of the point, isn't it? But I d there are many pleasures in reading her. I think her obviously the sentences, uh, the construction of the plot, the, the psychological intelligence. This about you know would it, would the therapist be clever enough? Yeah, uh, and um, uh, the the structure of this as you read it is is just. Oh, when you reread it, I think mm. to see how meticulously she's she's built the book is a, a real pleasure. I, I just want to say a bit. We we need to put some context to the biography of Denise Brunner's life, of several achievements before she became a novelist. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, I, but first, I'm just going to read the. This was her biography for many years in the front of all editions of her books. Anita Brunner was born in London in 1928, and apart from three postgraduate years in Paris, has lived there all her life. She trained as an art historian and taught at the Courtauld Institute of Art until 1988, when she abandoned her title of reader in the history of art at the University of London for the anonymity of a small flat in Chelsea and the cultivation of certain fictional characters who may one day appear in future novels. <laughs> <laughs> so good. This so, leaves aside being the first. Well, yeah. th this is it. So the thing about Anita Bruckner, um, so she's born in 1928... She's the only child of Newsom Bruckner, a Jewish immigrant from Poland, and Maud Shiska, a singer. And her mother on marriage was obliged to stop singing. Mm. And one of the... I think there is a character in one of the novels who is a singer who yeah, has been yeah. obliged to stop singing. Mm. Uh, not a happy character. And Bruckner grew up... So she had a quite a solitary childhood. Very few other children around. Lots of... Mm aunts, big Jewish family, are very literary. She says her father 
uh, gave her the works of Dickens to read at quite a young yeah. age, it's hoping, seven, hoping teach her. She, she said he hoped that it would teach me about social injustice, but all I ended up thinking was that everyone in England had a funny name. <laughs> so, Did she get one on her birthday from him? Isn't that what? Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So she becomes a an academic an art historian. In 1967, she became the first woman to hold the Slade Professorship of Fine Art at Cambridge University. She was promoted to reader at the Courtauld Institute of Art in 1977, where she worked until her retirement in 1988. And she would often talk about how much the Courtauld meant to her. We have a clip here. It's an episode of The Reunion from about five years ago on Radio 4, which featured people from the Courtauld talking about, amongst others, uh, Anthony Blunt and the effect that Anthony Blunt and indeed on this programme, John, Michael Jacobs also Michael Jacobs, contributes, who we yeah. talked about in the last yeah, episode, yeah. and Brian Sewell and uh, Niall Ferguson. But here is Bruckner talking about the effect that art and the courtauld had on her life. Well, I went to school in Dulwich and went into the Dulwich Picture Gallery on a regular basis and was absolutely entranced and puzzled by what I saw and I wanted to know more. I gave the odd lecture, but I wasn't on the staff until, I think, 1964. And, Anita, what did the Courtauld give you? A whole life, really. Everything that came after was very dull. Even the success as a writer? Oh, that was far less interesting. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, yes. It was your life? Yes. I mean... <laughs> Many things are that you do not hear voices like that anymore, do you? Yeah. But they one of, say that she used to... You know, you, you could feel the semicolons and the, yeah. and the, and the mm. punctuation. There's one of the facts about Bruckner which makes my, my toes crinkle up with happiness <laughs> is that she writes her first novel, A Start in Life, mm. at the age of 53. Mm. Do you know why? Because yeah. she didn't want to have to go outdoors during the summer holidays, during the long <laughs> vacation from the courtyard. <laughs> And so, in order for just to fill the vacation, she thought, I'll have a go at writing oh, a novel. That's it, she's, I'll, yeah. have, I'll have a but go. That, Other people do that's it. That's another yeah, theme, yeah. isn't it? That aching, long periods of time that these characters have to fill. It's yeah. so totally and, foreign and, to And at least for the first few years of her novel writing career, that is what she did. Every she summer. She would say, I write my novels for two reasons. One, to fill the summer and two, to see if I can do it again. Yeah. She also didn't revise them, the earlier ones in particular. No. It's all, she, well, I mean, she would maybe tweak the ending, she said, but she would literally just write them This is one of the amazing things. This is what Julian Barnes said about a start in life. He said, can you think of a better first novel that has apparently been written with no prior drafts, no full starts and no short stories. It is one it? of amazing. the greatest. We're yeah. constantly used to running her down. We, there's a thing we keep coming back to while she was publishing and while she was alive of being this small novelist, this yeah. niche novelist, and yet the achievement to write that first book and have it be pretty much perfect, but I think have the part, voice there. Isn't it also because she doesn't make a song and dance about it. She doesn't sort of publicise herself, she doesn't make a big deal out of it. So therefore she just does this, she turns it out, then she does another one the next year. And, and she de de deprecates them. Yes, exactly, I mean, and she doesn't really I feel... I love that she got the, some of the feminist uh, criticism, this from the great Blake Morrison, 94 thing, she said, knife is not a nightclub. Life is not a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the reviews I've had, particularly from women, which I assume that is, seem to have been quite defensive. These women are angry. 
They believe they can get what they want from life. Maybe they're just lucky enough not to have found out that they can't. <laughs> Such a daring thing to do. They're lucky enough not to find it. And Rachel tells that story. And she said that I think it was either Liz Calder or Carmen Khalil was having lunch with her once. And as occasionally there'd be quite long pauses, they started to burble about their children and their life. And, their, and she just got up and she said, you have had everything that I have not. And then just walked out of the lunch. Just, so it, just a little bit too old for it that 1926 that yeah. these are women women who are born 20 years yeah. later who are going no I am I'm going to have the publishing career I'm going to have this I'm going to have the family I'm going to have the affair and the romance with numerous men and she's just that bit too old. I, I love the the, the the piece of um, information that after the success of Hotel du Lac and we should say Hotel du Lac which won the Booker Prize, very controversial Booker Prize winner mm-hmm. in the same year that Julian Barnes was nominated for Flaubert's Parrot and infamously. J.G. Ballard was yeah. sure, nominated for, for Empire, Empire of the Sun. But after the success of Hotel du Lac, which became a great bestseller, she didn't buy a second home, but she bought the flat next, next door, door in her mansion block, <laughs> where she would. But it's where she would go and write. It's yeah. actually perfectly sensible. Where she had, a, so she had the flat yeah. next door. When she wanted to work, she would go next door. I mean, she's so full of paradoxes, though. There's a great thing in, 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 in that interview as well when it talks about marriage, and she said, "Well, I mean, you know, there were a couple of people who proposed, but never, never remotely took them seriously." But then she says. If we could have got the difficulties of the proposal out of the way and settled down as perhaps two old people with small children, <laughs> that would have been an ideal setup. Then I could have got on with my reading and writing and all the rest mm. of it. Yeah. But I really didn't want to be taken over. So she was a feminist, but she was just a, her own... Did she, but she didn't like those early novels, did she? Or she said she didn't like them. Well, no, there's that great... There's that interview from 1984 where she says, look at me as a very depressed and debilitated novel. It's the one I regret. When I published it, a very old friend of my mother's summoned me and said, you are getting yourself a bad reputation as a lonely woman. Stop it at once. <laughs> she was right. It sticks. Ten years after that, she said, I hate those early novels. I think they're crap. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the true answer, isn't it? She says that they're not as interesting as what I'm doing now. And what I'm doing now is not receiving nearly as much attention. Well, she says also she would change the end of Hotel Deluxe. She wished that she'd made Edith choose um, to get married. She wished that Edith would. um... That's for it. Now, Hotel Deluxe, I think it was very interesting rereading that on the back of having just read a lot of Heyer for this because I think it's her... Georgette Heyer novel. I'm convinced that's, that that's, she's read the whole of Heyer, yeah. who she refers to several times in. in and the that's who Edith is, right? She's a she, she's Edith a romantic right novelist. It's yeah. constructed very like uh, <laughs> a, a thrusting <laughs> name. That's right. It's <laughs> like the feel coloured furniture. Hope or charity or something. And this is fascinating. You say Hotel du Lac is dedicated to Rosamund Lehman. Mm, well, Rosamund Lehman was one of her favourite authors. And Lehman would refer to Hotel du Lac as my novel. No, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I see my novel has won the Booker Prize. And also. So is it family and friends? No, a friend from England is dedicated to Carmen Khalil. You know, she has this very interesting, ambivalent relationship with feminism. Mm. Simultaneously, one of her closest personal friends is the publisher of Virago. Yeah, and I'm you know. sure that's true for many, many women of, of her yeah. gender. That, uh, I think what Una's saying is right. It's got to be something yeah. to do with the time because, you that's, know, she's living this amazing feminist life in one hand, but she doesn't recognise it And then she sees that. these younger women who say who are able to say, for whatever reasons, I'm having this, I'm having this, I'm having it all, and I'm going to have everything, and she goes, well, it was one or the other for me. It was writing or mm. it was family. It was being the first woman professor so that you could be the second yeah. one. I think she writes so elegantly as well mm. about being an outsider, being unmarried, being a spinster, mm. being an intellectual, 
being Jewish. Yeah. You know, all these things that are not factored into her. Being female. How, is she, how she has been mm. talked about. Mm. And also, John, there's the issue of... I think it's interesting that people who... We're in the business. We understand what's meant when people say, well, she published a novel a year mm. and that worked against her. But it probably did because some kind of fatigue would set in amongst publishers and literary editors, how do you find something new to say on an annual basis about somebody who is... Especially when they are vaguely similar. I mean, I, that for their, is their charm for people like us who love her, right? But yeah. actually, it didn't work particularly in her favour. And I think a lot of reviews, particularly towards the end of her life, did make some sometimes snide comment about, like, another, you know, another Anita Brooklyn novel. I have that is... not read many of the... I've not read any of the later ones. No. I mean, does, does the standard keep up? Do they... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm six away from the end. Oh. <laughs> I've just read Falling Slowly. Right. Falling Slowly is... It's as good as any of them. It's wonderful. So that's, that, I was going to say, where would you go next? I want to read one. I just wanted to go. Latecomers, if you haven't read Latecomers. Oh, a closed eye. I really like a closed eye is wonderful. Yeah. You've got a copy of a private view there, Una, as well. I, I love that. I've just started this one. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. I got through that on the train earlier, so uh, I, you know you can't put them down. They're like thrillers. They, they are. My theory about Britain. There's a really interesting piece on his blog by our former guest, Jonathan Gibbs, the novelist Jonathan Gibbs, where he had read a couple of Bruckner's books and he said, you know, these don't really work in terms of narrative, the way I would teach narrative in fiction, in a creative writing sense. These don't really work. I really liked Jonathan. It really gave me pause for thought, thinking about why don't they work. And I think the reason why they don't follow the rules is that a lot of the time the rules that Bruckner is following, although she has a great respect for the 19th century novel in particular, in a sense it's her background as an an expert on art which is coming into play in the novels. They are like portraits. Mm. They are often... She'll do something in the opening chapter of the book where she will literally sketch out what she is going to write about. She will will mark out her canvas. And then as each chapter goes on, she goes to a different part of the canvas and fills it in. And what she does brilliantly is go back to the same bit of that canvas five chapters later, scrub it out a little bit, repaint it. So you only understand the picture that you're looking at, in fact, hence the title, Look at Me, when you get to the end of the book, when you can suddenly see the picture that you've been watching being painted before your eyes. I I also think it's it's a sort of, you know, that each scene is a tableau and then she goes home and she unpacks the the psychological significances, the possibilities. She replays different versions of how the scene might have gone. It is that observer, that thing that she, she writes about being, the, the person who watches. And, and the, there's a wonderful passage where she talks about it has to be funny, even towards the end. I'm not, I'm, you know, it has to be funny. She has to turn it into something that's funny, which it is. Quite. <laughs> have you got a copy of A Start in Life? Though? Yeah. So you're talking about it has to be funny. These are the first words we have to assume that she wrote in fiction. I think this is one of the funniest things yeah. I've ever read. The opening of, supposedly, the slightly miserable Anita Brooklyn's A Start in Life. <laughs> Dr Weiss, at 40, knew that her life had been ruined by literature. 
In her thoughtful and academic way, she put it down to her faulty moral education, which dictated through the conflicting, but in this one instance, united agencies of her mother and father, <laughs> that she ponder the careers of Anna Karenina and Emma Bovary, but that she emulate those of David Copperfield and Little Dorrit. <laughs> <laughs> but really, it had started much earlier than that, when, at an unremembered moment in her extreme infancy, she had fallen asleep, enraptured, as her nurse breathed the words... Cinderella shall go to the ball. <laughs> the ball had never materialised. <laughs> Literature, on the other hand, was now her stock in trade, if trade were an apt description of the exchange that ensued three times weekly in her pleasant seminar room, when students, bolder than she had ever been, wrinkled their brows as if in pain when asked to consider any writer less alienated than Camus. They were large, <laughs> clear-eyed and beautiful, their voices rang with confidence, but their translations were narrow and cautious. Dr. Weiss, who preferred men, <laughs> was Dr. Weiss, who preferred men, was an authority on women. Savage. It's absolutely savage. She it's is, brilliant. I think you used the word at one point, merciless, Andy, mm. which is exactly right. Before we go, I must I just must give a mention. We are all big fans of the blog uh, brooknerian.blogspot.co.uk and you can find Tom Sabine I'm going to say Sabine Sabine he he may contact me to tell me hello Tom Uh, (laughs) this magnificent blog devoted to Bruckner and all matters Bruckner which uh, you will very much enjoy if you read Look at Me or Late Comers or any of these books. And lots of daily updates on Twitter as well. So yeah, yes, you follow him indeed. on Twitter. Surely the perfect place to Surely, end. Surely, encroaching night. We exit the Brooklyn <laughs> Rome. <laughs> Thanks to Lucy Scholes, to Una McCormick, to our producer Matt Hall, and once again to our sponsors Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod, on Facebook at Backlisted Pod and our page on the Unbound site, unbound.com forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Thanks very much, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.